You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. So this evening, oh man, City Lights is very excited to be hosting Frank Wilderson III, author of the new book, Afro-Pessimisms. Frank will be joined in conversation tonight by uh, our very own Justin Dismangle. So we're very, very excited about this. Uh, we've missed Justin. He's, he's been away from the Bay Area and we're so happy to have him here tonight with us too. So um, let me just give you a quick bio from both gentlemen. So a uh, little point of reference as it were. So Frank B. Wilderson III is a professor and chair of African American Studies at the University of California in Irvine and is also the author of um, Incognito a memoir of exile and apartheid. Frank B. Wilderson III has received an NEA Literature Fellowship and a Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Legacy Award for Creative Nonfiction, among other awards. And he's gonna be uh, joined tonight in conversation by Justin Desmangles, who is the chairman of the Before Columbus Foundation, as well as the administrator of the American Book Award. And he was the long running host of the radio broadcast, New, J New Day Jazz. And people by long running, I mean 15 years. That's a long run. So we can hardly wait to hear him again on the airwaves. Um, so very excited about tonight's conversation. And um, we're going to be posting um, the link to buy Frank's amazing new book um, throughout the evening in the comments section. And if you all have any questions for these gentlemen, um, at the end of the conversation, we're going to be having a little Q&A. So any questions you have, go on and post them in the comments, and we'll get to them at the end of the evening, OK? So without further ado, Please uh, let me introduce uh, Frank and Justin. Frank, it's always wonderful to have time with you. This is a somewhat new medium for you and I because we've been on radio and television, but this is our first Zoom. It is. It is. I'd like to. I'd like to start uh, with a quote that I think is very familiar to all of us from Malcolm X and his speech, "The Ballot or the Bullet." You don't have a revolution in which you love your enemy. And you don't have a revolution in which you are begging the system of exploitation to integrate you into it. Revolutions destroy systems. Frank Wilderson, you are a revolutionary. And more importantly, I believe, a revolutionary who has never left the battlefield. And with Afro-pessimism, I believe that part of what we understand about this book can be likened to battlefield triage. When a medical team approaches the battlefield, they're faced with choices over what can be done with the missing, broken, and mutilated bodies of the wounded to treat them or not to save their lives if possible. I think part of the understanding that I have of Afro-pessimism is that it is motivated by medicinal impulses. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, thank you, Justin. It's great to be back with you. I enjoy, I didn't know you were, you'd done this New Day Jazz for 15 years. <laughs> 
but I really always used to look forward to coming out on your show back then. Maybe you could say a little bit more uh, about the question so that I don't run off on a tangent. In other words, what was it in the book, for example, that, that I'm, I'm having the medicinal metaphor is one mm-hmm. thing not hooked into completely at the moment, but I want, maybe if you give me a more anecdotal uh, intervention that I can say something that won't be so tangential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, part of what I mean by that is that there is a recognition from you that that we find ourselves in in, in a war. Mm-hmm. And that you, as a person who has been deeply wounded over the course of your biography, your spiritual biography, if you will, that this laying on of the hands with your book, Afro-Pessimism, is coming from the point of view of a wounded healer. I see, yes. When we yeah. look into antiquity, we, we discover an archetype that reappears throughout history, throughout the stories that we share and tell each other, of the figure of the healer who themselves is wounded, and because of this, they, they are able to better treat uh, those who are in, in need of this medicine. Ah, got it. Okay, that's very helpful, because... Um, how can I put this? There's, there is, in my view, I'm only one Afro-pessimist theorist, you know, but there mm-hmm. is, in my view, um, the urge, the desire to find the cure, in a sense, you know. Mm. Um, but there's also the notion that we are all, um, as Black people, mm. on this battlefield uh, bleeding out. Mm. leading out whether you've got $2 million in the bank or whether you're accused of passing bad checks and uh, just had the life snuffed out of you, you know, the other day. Right. And I think that what can be frustrating for people who are especially people who are trained in uh, an Anglo-American tradition of pedagogy, and I'll say what I mean by that in a moment, because I don't think that people trained in a kind of continental way of thinking, or people in South Africa, where I lived for five years, or in various parts of Latin America, are kind of um, shackled with this besetting hobble of needing to understand relations of power through empiricism, and Mm -hmm. only being capable of examining um, traumatic situations, the paradigm of oppression, if that comes packaged with a idea about how to redress this problem. And so Afro-pessimism does have that medicinal kind of, I like the metaphor. At the same time, uh, I would say that it is more of a diagnosis Uh. than a prescription for a cure. And the diagnosis is so dire Uh that it says two things. I'm kind of jumping to the end 
of the, of the long arguments that run through alpha pessimism, both through a psychoanalytic engagement and through its engagement and interrogation of political economy. But at the end, it would argue that, you know, where we are as black people in the world, which is we, we are the foils of human existence. In other words, humanity needs us. In the word, like Hortense Spiller said about black women, uh, my country needs me. And if I were not here, I would have to be invented, okay? Mm -hmm. We are the necessary foils for everyone, what, what in psychoanalysis is called psychic integration. The mm -hmm. way mind works to know that I am alive. At the end of the day, I know that I am alive because I am not black. And that's the, that's the, that's the end of the argument. Mm -hmm. And what it comes with is a, is a kind of, of triage, which your words are very apt, medically oriented diagnostic right. of, but it does not offer the capital R small X of the cure. Right. And the reason for that is because unlike capitalism as an oppressive system, unlike post-colonialism as an oppress oppressive system, unlike patriarchy as a, an oppressive system, where the oppressors, worker, colonialists, male, are clearly humans uh, uh -huh. and oppressed. Woman, colonial subject, working class are clearly human. What we are arguing is that the human has never been diagnostically analyzed enough to show that its other is the slave slash black. And so we would, we would agree with other theorists that this condition we find ourselves in for the past 1,300 years is not ordained by God. It is not mm -hmm. divine. It is constructed through the violence of sentient beings. Mm -hmm. But it is epistemologically the ceiling of thought. So if we break through this oppressive system called global anti-blackness, we will be in something else. But unlike Marx for, for, for anti-capitalism, unlike Said for anti-colonialism, unlike Butler or Julia Kristeva or Judy Chicago for anti-patriarchy, we cannot, no one can imagine what is on the other side of the human black antagonism. Mm. But you cannot write a sentence about it. Mm, mm. I'd, I'd like to return to a point that you made uh, a few moments ago about blacks being used as a foil uh, or a vehicle or an equation through which you know the humanity is discovered. You know of of of, of those who are inflicting uh, the structures of of this violence, and where I'm going with that is something that we hear about a lot uh, that is um, almost inevitably impressed upon American Blacks, and that is the, the, the plea for forgiveness. And of course, along with forgiveness comes, you know, its ugly twin, forget. Blacks yeah. are often being asked to forget in order to forgive. And, and this idea that the Black is the locus of redemption, for these people who are inflicting extraordinary levels of violence, while at the same time, blacks being encouraged to forgive and forget. 
in, in fact, in the wake of the Dylan Roof shooting, I don't think I'd ever seen the word forgive so many times in the American press. And of course, the president at that time went down there and implored everyone to practice exactly that, that, that forgive. So with that Jekyll and Hyde relationship of forgive and forget, um, could you talk to us about how this complicates the idea of memory and mourning? Because with Afro-pessimism, the book, there, there is uh, this very finely tuned excavation of your own spiritual biography in terms of memory and mourning that enlightens or brings light to our, to our present moment. It's a very uh, uh, fascinating and compelling literary technique that you use there. But I, I'd like you to talk to us about that, and, about the idea of mourning, memory, and this absurd notion that those should be redeemed with <laughs> this redemption through suffering, uh, one of the tenets of Christianity, of course. Yeah, well, that's a very good, very good point that you've raised. And, you know, talk about deja vu. Yeah. It was the subject of our conversation when we did that TV show sitting outside of Lake Merritt, when Dylan Roof had just lit up a church. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, so here we are again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say that there's a lot going on there. Um, How can I put this? There's a way in which, uh, you know, Baldwin said that every white person knows uh, that in their closet, um, there's a corpse that they have murdered. Something to that effect, you know, and I don't remember that comes from the Atlanta Child Murders books, that he, book that he wrote, The Evidence of Things Not Seen. Uh, but, you know, the point is that there's, there's a necessity. I, w- I would argue uh, that anti-Black violence is not a form of discrimination. It is a series of ritualistic healing uh, spectacles for people who are not black. In other words, there. In other words, all 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 people who we would categorize as human, and and you know, in my book and other people's book, we have rigorously analyzed what the capacities are for communal existence. Um, I some white supremacists have done this for us, you know, more simply. Back in eighteen. 18- 53, I was in the Dred Scott, I think in the Dred Scott decision, you know, when Justice Taney says, I'm returning Dred Scott to slavery, not because I agree with the lower court that said, uh, just, you know, one lower court says he made it to Minnesota, therefore he's free. Another lower court said he made it to Minnesota, but the master did not manumit him. So he's not free. The Supreme Court said, you're both wrong. And this kind of gets back to your point, you know. He said, uh, Justice Chief Justice Taney said, I'm returning Dred Scott to slavery because he had no right to appear as a subject of jurisprudence. And this is a very important point in that he's making, because what he's trying to say is that there has to be a group of people who are sentient beings who can never ever be part of political, social, or familial uh, community. There has to be that. Because if you don't have permanent outsiders, 
then you cannot adequately define what the insight is. It's a, you know, he's doing semiotics 50 years before it became a discipline, you know. And so what he, what he said is that black people come from a place where there is no community, the place called Africa, the place of slaves. And he's only in the pre-conscious articulating the general global consensus that most people are embarrassed to allow to flutter up from their unconscious to their pre-conscious. So in the 19th century, you could speak the libidinal economy openly. And he says, there are degraded humans who are still humans. For example, the Native Americans. Their degradation comes from the fact that their anthropological accoutrement, their languages, the way they eat, the way they treat resources, the way they organize polity, is inferior to ours. But they have the capacity to assimilate and to learn, okay? But the slave is quintessentially outside without capacity for human entry, access, and development. So in other words, this is a very important point because it is a point that the Arabs begin with in 625 AD. The Chinese pick it up 200 years later. The Iranians, the Iraqis, Moroccan Jews. What I'm trying to say is that for 1300 years, the entire world has organized its sense of communal consensus. Who are we? What are we? Along the lines of what in the absolute we are not. And what we are not in the absolute is black. And that structure of feeling, as well as that unconscious consensus, organizes the sociality of the world and must be reinforced through the infliction of violence without context. And I'll stop there, but that's a very important point. Anti-black violence, is violence without context. In other words, we call it gratuitous violence. Violence that is not contingent upon a trigger of transgression. You cross the border illegally. That's not anti-black violence. Um, rape and domestic violence, you your, your skirt was too high. That's not anti-black violence. Uh, the workers went on strike or had a Cuban revolution. That's not anti-black violence because all of those forms of of ritual performative violence coming from the paradigms of oppression are contingent, meaning they have a context. And what the abyss of reality that Afro-pessimism looks into is what does it mean to be a sentient being who moves through the world with open vulnerability, who moves through the world with the threat of violence from any corner, from any per person, without there needing to be a real or imagined transgression. That's it. I'd like to pivot from there because given the time constraints here, I think it's very important for, for our, our, our viewers to understand that 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 with this book, with with Afro pessimism, uh, you employ techniques that are familiar to what we might otherwise consider uh, novels of uh, suspense, 
or novels that are uh, detective stories in, in, in uh, the most uh, vigorous uh, and robust uh, uh, American mold. I think of some of your um, literary antecedents as perhaps most obviously Richard Wright's Black Boy, American Hunger, but also uh, Chester Himes, A Lonely Crusade, and, and most especially The Quality of Hurt. I think that part of what distinguishes uh, this extraordinary work of yours, uh, the new book, Afro-Pessimism, are some of the most lucid, clear expositions of critical race theory, but absent of some of the usual uh, uh, impositions that we find in, 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 in that field in, in the academy, meaning specifically the, the uh, prose or jargon uh, that is sometimes uh, turgid or, or, or difficult. None of that awkwardness is here. And there's a sense of rhythmic propulsion and emotional uh, authority uh, that one would find in cinematic language, like with Hitchcock's thrillers. I'm thinking of, of course, chapter three and, uh, and Stella. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about how you employ this? It's a, it's a remarkable and deeply satisfying technique uh, of how you uh, bring such uh, uh, illumination to your ideas. Well, thank you for that. And this is why I like talking with you. <laughs> I could say checks in the mail. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, my first training uh, at the loft in Minneapolis and then, uh, and then as an MFA student in, in creative writing at, at Columbia is in writing. But it even goes back before that with, with your colleague at, before the Columbus, for Columbus Foundation, uh, the great Ishmael Reed, um, who basically discovered me in 1980 and uh, was really kind enough to publish a short story of a 24-year-old uh, kid. Um, and, and, you know, so one of the things that Ishmael said to us, because what happened is uh, in the chapter that you're talking about, Stella, uh, sorry, uh, Hattie McDaniel was dead. Uh, it's, I won't go into it, but that's a period when I met Ishmael and he was a assistant, sorry, an adjunct or visiting professor at Dartmouth College. And he chose like 10 people out of like 100 manuscripts to be in this workshop. And I was like freaked out that he chose me, you know, because it was blind pool. And one of the things that he kept saying is, is, you know, literary writers need to learn pacing. Literary writers need to learn suspense. Uh, your job is to evoke emotions. People should be terrified and crying or laughing. You know, this is not an academic journal. You know, you're trying to provide a vicarious experience for someone. And so for you to say it's satisfying, satisfying really warms my heart because going back to all those lessons from, from you know, uh, first and 80, you know, with uh, Ishmael Reed and then at the Loft and then at, at Columbia, um, that's all stuff that I learned and wanted to do before I get a PhD in the 90s in critical theory. And what I realized, um, this, this book doesn't have to be here. Um, what happened is that uh, Jared Sexton, myself, uh, people like Sabia Hartman, David Marriott, Zaki Iman Jackson, were basically saying, we're anti-capitalists. We're anti-homophobia. We're anti-patriarchy. And we're studying all this deep theoretical th um, interventions in anti-colonial, anti but we're also saying that 
the payoff in terms of liberation, the end of capitalism and the instantiation of communism, which I'm 3,000% for, but even that will not relieve anti-blackness. And there's something about the way we suffer, which is different than everyone else. And so we just wanted this, or thinking of the horizon of all this was just to interrogate the critical theory of revolutionary thought. What happens is that Trayvon Martin is murdered. Uh, and then Michael Brown, and in between that, a host of black transgender women who never get uh, mediatized, you know, a host of black women who are incarcerated, who never get mediatized. And the black community begins to pick up on the texts of Afro-pessimism. And so what, we, what you have going from 2012 all the way to the present is a relay that most people on the left don't even know is happening. This relay between black a black kind of underground insurgency that's happening in Vienna, in Black Lives Matter there, in Berlin, in London, in Montreal. I've done workshops for the movement of black lives in all these different places. And they're reading this Afro-Pessimist critical theory and trying to see how it explains their suffering and how it could inform their tactics. And so a need for this to be in a language and in a pace and with an emotional payoff that will uh, as you say, be satisfying for non-academics evolves because of black people on the ground doing what they're doing, for example, in Minneapolis, Minnesota right now. Now, uh, I know uh, at, at this point it would be really, really lovely, Frank, to have you read from, from some of the books so folks can get an idea of just what I'm talking about when I when I when I talk about this this momentum and this really uh, uncanny sense of of propulsion and and rhythm. So perhaps do you have a, a a passage selected that you could share with us? I do. Uh, I'll make it really short. It'll be three pages, and um, I won't give a lot of preamble. I, uh, since you mentioned uh, Stella and the Hattie McDaniel is dead portion. I'll read three pages from that. What people need to know is it's 1979, 1980. I'm 23 and 24 years old. Uh, I'm living in a kind of university community in Minneapolis, Minnesota called Southeast Minneapolis. Uh, my partner at the time in the book is a woman named Stella, who's uh, 18 years older than me. And we're living with her 11-year-old daughter. All of a sudden, the feds come down on us for a court case that she has. The upstairs neighbor begins terrorizing us and um, we're chased by all kinds of ghosts. So I, that's as much as a buildup as I'll put into it. And I'll, wait, I'll start reading these three pages. Though I spent nights on end in the lower level of the duplex where Stella lived with Malaika, it was, I, I still had my own apartment when Noam, Stella's lawyer, came to the house to tell her about the court case. It was November, 1979. By the end of the year, I would be on welfare. In fact, it was that November of 1979 that Stella and I saw our revolution die. It was the month we rejoiced at the news that Asada Shakur had been freed from a maximum security prison by the Black Liberation Army. It was the month the Ku Klux Klan shot and killed Black demonstrators in Greensboro, North Carolina, just rode up to the picket line, got out the car and shot them at point blank, point blank range. November was the month we watched it on the news. The Klansmen opened their trunk, they fetched their weapons, they sprinted 10 yards to the marchers, they opened fire. 
five lay dead on the ground. That month, Stella and I had no idea that Asada Shakur would, be, would have to spend the rest of her life in Cuba in exile. We had no idea that the film we saw would not be enough to convict the assailants in North Carolina. And we had no idea that by March of the coming year, we'd be sleeping in my parents' car. Several days after her lawyer left, days crowded with silence as Stella thought on what he had said, she called a man named Jamal. She told him he needed, she needed protection. There was silence on his end for three interminable beats. Protection from who, Jamal asked her. The system, she said. By the end of 1979, the number of people Stella knew who could hear the system without raising an eyebrow had dwindled. But Jamal used to say, just because you're not paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. In 1968, when he and Stella and Dan everyone they knew believed in revolution, Jamal had gone up against the system and did a nickel of a 10-year stint in the Stillwater prison in Bayport, Minnesota. He wasn't someone who would raise an eyebrow when someone mentioned the system. As a result of Stella's call, Jamal and a brilliantly taciturn brother dropped by Stella's house one night when I wasn't there. Jamal said, let's go for hamburgers as he motioned to the ceiling light and the telephone. Then he put his fingers to his, over his lips. Stella thought of White Castle as a temple, White Castle hamburgers, as a temple where Satan killed you with sodium and trans fats. But this wasn't a night for insisting that Jamal sit down with her and pore over back issues of Prevention Magazine. In the booth of the White Castle restaurant on 36th Avenue and East Lake Street, Stella's daughter, who never missed anything, watched as the quiet brother looked around the restaurant, then nodded to Jamal. Malika, Stella's daughter, saw Jamal unwrap his hamburger and put it on his lap. Then he fetched something from his pocket and wrapped it in the hamburger paper that he passed to Stella. Later that night, Malika told me that she got up to go to the bathroom and found her mother sitting on the bed with an automatic handgun and a magazine of bullets. She watched her mother snap the clip into place, wrap it in an oil skin, and hide it in the closet deep behind the shoes. I was not yet driving a cab at that point. That would start when I moved in with Stella. I still worked as a waiter at Williams Cafe on Hennepin Avenue, but the restaurant was slow one night and I was sent home early. My studio apartment was on the ground floor of an old brownstone six blocks from Lake of the Isles. The key worked, but the door to my studio was chained from the inside. How could I have done that? I thought in self-rebuke. It took a moment for me to realize that in point of fact, I could not have done that. Someone else did that. That someone was inside. I spinned down the hall. I burst out the front door and dashed to where I could see my apartment window. The alley light lit them in silhouette. One leg curled out the window of my studio, then his torso, then the other leg. He stumbled and almost fell before he ran. Then the other one rolled out with the grace of a pole vaulter clearing the bar. His long hair flounced up and down in the low yellow light. Like a fool, I chased them halfway down the alley. Like an even bigger fool, I called the cops. When they arrived, even with the Murphy bed closed into the wall, there was little space left with one large cop by the sink and stove and me and his partner in the middle of the room. You have this wad of cash on you or you left it here when you went to work, 
the one by the sink said to me, pointing to the money in the dish strainer, tip money I had carelessly left by the sink until I went to the bank. I told him I had left it there. Did you leave this Miranda camera here when you went to the restaurant? I nodded. The cop by the sink was counting 80, 85, 90, $95 in cash, a camera worth what, two C-notes? 300 bucks worth of stuff just left here? You say someone, two people, I corrected him. You say two people climbed in, chained the door from the inside, and then what? Play bridge? Had a cup of coffee? You see how it looks from where we stand. I have a right to privacy. That's what they stole, I said. They looked at me as though I had said I have a right to shingles. My books had been taken from my bookshelf and arranged on the floor in neat orderly rows. The case to my typewriter was open and pages from a novel I was writing were spread on the desk. Whoever did this, I said, knew my schedule. They thought they had time. Time for what? Said the cop. You won't know unless you investigate, I said. The cop by the sink nodded. Investigate. Gotcha. Then he stooped and picked up two books from the floor and said, I.F. Stone, The Killing at Kent State, How Murder Went Unpunished, Karl Marx, The Communist Manifesto. He placed them both back neatly on the floor. What are you reading this stuff for? He asked me. Not surprisingly, I soon moved in with Stella and Malaika and a gun in the closet that we didn't know how to use. Well, I feel, uh, Frank, that now would be a good time to uh, open this discussion to uh, a question and answer uh, period. We have, a, we have one question from uh, Jason Stevens uh, for you. Let's see. Justin uh, used the term spiritual autobiography to describe Afro-pessimism. I wonder if Dr. Wilderson would actually accept that description. But all the same, it's got me thinking of Augustine's Confessions and Deirdre's circumfession. Something that I've been wondering recently is how divergent or similar is Afro-pessimism's concept of world ending from Deirdre's democracy to come or his claim that forgiveness is essentially impossible? Hmm. Uh, that's a 10-week question. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to... I, I think the word spiritual is correct in the sense that in the in the, what Fanon says in in Black Skin White Mask is that what has been excavated from us is our cosmology. It's not like we've simply lost labor power uh, from 400 years of working without money, or um, lost the freedom to move about from all the restrictive covenants and human chains. It's actually the destruction of the metaphysical requirements of, of being. And the book opens with a nervous breakdown that I had almost exactly 20 years ago. And what's interesting about that is that the more I tried to find the source of that through uh, the records from the hospital to um, thinking back to my journal from my time in, in five years in psychoanalysis after that episode, the more it re I realized that um, madness, whether low grade or high grade at a psychotic episode is actually the state of being for the black psyche. That cure 
is available to others. And I, and I, it's a very complicated, um, I don't want to get us into my interrogation of the assumptive logic of Lacanian psychoanalysis, but for $27, you can buy my second book. And uh, I go through an entire chapter on um, celebrating the diagnostics of psychoanalysis while um, chastising Lacan for not realizing that the analysan, meaning the person on the couch in psychoanalytic theory, is always already a human and never a slave. In other words, the analysan lives in a context of violence that has a reason. And the black person comes into therapy or psychoanalysis, and what they really have is suffering from a, con from a, from a violence without context, meaning anything could pop off. There's no way to train your child how to be a good American, because American, by definition, is an anti-Black construction. And that also means that the road to sanity is unethical because it crowds us out. Uh, and so what, what I'm trying to do in the book is to excavate the problem of madness without offering the cure to what has no cure in this context. Uh, doctor, I got another question for you here. Um, uh, A. Wilson uh, wanted to know how much has your newer work been influenced by Warren's ontological terror? And uh, do you find much in common with, the, with Warren's work on ontology and non-being of blackness? I think there's a great resonance. Um, I've, I've been fortunate to be in conferences where he was and um, have read the book. And I think it's quite a, break, quite a breakthrough. And I'm, I'm happy to say that that's, that book and in the next 10 years, um, you're going to see anywhere from 10 to 15 Afro-pessimist monographs come on the scene till we'll get to a point where 10 years ago, it was the pariah. And 10 years from now, uh, it'll be in the room, just like post-colonial theory. Uh, here's a little extension to that. Uh, 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 by this point, Afro-pessimism is entering something of a second wave as more of the students <laughs> are beginning to publish their own works. And uh, uh, Tabji is wondering uh, what you've learned from your encounters with them and uh, what you are hopeful or excited about in the forthcoming wave of Afro-pessimist research. Well, I'm really excited uh, about, uh, you know, I'm gonna call some names out, but, um, and then the people I don't mention, probably gonna be mad because I, you know, but, but uh, Salamawa Terefe, who's, um, now teaching at Tulane, uh, Patrice Douglas, who's at Duke, uh, John Murillo, who's at UC Irvine, uh, J. Austin Williams at, um, at Bucknell, Cecilia um, Cooper, uh, they are on the job market now, and um, I am very excited about all of their books um, that, will be, that will be coming out. And one of the things that I've, that, that I've learned um, uh, and then uh, Parisa, Parisa Varese at, at Cornell. One of, the things, one of the things that I focused on when I wrote the second book was this notion that blackness and slavery are coterminous, which is very different than any group. You know, in other words, the world thought blackness as slaveness, which is a very different kind of dynamic than Orlando Patterson describes in his book, Slavery and Social Death, which I borrow from a lot, who people reading my work know about. But there was no 
plenitude of non-slaveness before blackness. And that's an interesting theoretical point. I thought that this had started with the transatlantic slave trade. And what students have shown me is no, this starts with the Arabs in East Africa in 625 AD. And then uh, like Parisa, who's at uh, Cornell is writing, and then it goes to Iran, for example, and then to China. And so anti-blackness begins germinating as a way of organizing thought hundreds of years before the Portuguese rock up to the Western part of the continent. And so what we're going to see, um, and uh, Jaime Alvarez at City University of New York has just written a, an Afro-pessimist book on the situation in Brazil. And so uh, my book, Afro-pessimism, has been bought by Todavia to be translated into Portuguese. It's, there's, th there's talk about it being translated into Spanish. Um, they're Afro-pessimists pessimists in Venezuela. These are all, for the most part, people under the age of 40, you know, who are manifesting an analysis of their particular situations, whether it's transgender um, relations, anti-transgender relations, whether it's black, deepening black feminism, whether it's how does this manifest in 1500 uh, and how does it manifest in, in Venezuela? So we're going to see a real breakthrough with these books. I'm, I'm privy to them because some of them, I'm on committees where they were written as dissertations, you know. Um, but what we're going to see is that there's an accusation coming from left-wing people who are, who are not Afro-pessimists saying, this is a U.S.-centered intervention, and it does not apply to the rest of the world, and it certainly doesn't apply to the world before the Portuguese. And we're going to see a plethora in the archive of Afro-pessimism that blows that accusation out of the water. Um, so uh, Dr. Anna is asking, uh, what... Uh pedagogical advice would you have for someone who studies critical theory and wishes to teach it in a way that is honest about the struggles that black people face? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, not to be too much of a salesperson here. Uh, <laughs> sell, sell, sell. But uh, if, you're, if you're doing this with yourself, uh, Anna, then I would buy my second book uh, because you've got the the vernacular, the, the jargon, the language to, to read that book. And I would read the first 100 pages of that book and then skip to the epilogue because the key intervention here is this notion that has to be, that Afro-pessimism is scandalizing and breaking apart in the humanities. This notion that there's a thing called the human which is organic and phenomenal. And you have to understand how to understand the human as con constructed and in need of its other, number one. The second point is to um, try to train yourself analytically in a way that is not grounded in Anglo-American thought, because Anglo-American thought is grounded in empiricism and observation. And the power of the humanities is, is, the, is the toolbox that we have to show relations of power and oppression when nothing is happening, to show capitalist exploitation without going to the factory floor. So Anna's the, the questioner's name. I would say to Anna that um, deepen your understanding of the difference between structural or paradigmatic violence 
and performative violence, because this is the most besetting hobble of American intellectuals. And it's, it's precisely what Orlando Patterson was trying to correct in his 1982 book, Slavery and Social Death. He says, when people who are Americans start writing about relational dynamics, they fall off the deep end and give you a book of reportage on experiences. That's not the deal. You know, if you want to know how to do the other thing, to write about relational dynamics in abstract language without having to resort to the empiricism of events, read the Italian communists. All right, doctor. And uh, uh, A. Wilson uh, was curious, how can non-Black readers engage in Afro-pessimism and your work and, and material action without falling back into savior complexes, uh, if it's possible at all? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I, you know I, 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 I'd be more of a uh, psychoanalytic practitioner than a psychoanalytic critic if I had to answer that question. But I will say this. Um, I did a lot of uh, uh, 96, uh, 97 through 2005-ish. I did a lot of political work in Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco. And uh, one of the, and, and this is, I don't think Afro-pessimism as a field of inquiry could have happened in any place else because what we were seeing as black activists is a kind of allergy that multiracial coalitions had when black voices spoke up saying, we suffer like y'all, but essentially we suffer differently. So that the phrase black and brown has to be cut apart. It cannot be a phrase. Brown people suffer in a particular way. Black people suffer in a particular way. And so linking this word, making one word out of three, black and brown, then mystifies the structure of black suffering. And it also makes, uh, to quote Jarek Sesson, black people refugees in other people's projects. Because the coalition is always saying, no, let's find the universal. To hell with the universal, okay? And so what, we were, what, what, what you can do, what this questioner can do, is to um, resist the urge to look for analogies and think about what does it mean to be a being who suffers the same bullet in, in LA, for example, you know, in the barrio from the same gun that's, that shoots you in the black ghetto. Performatively, that violence is the same, but structurally, it's very different because anti-black violence never needs a trigger, a, cont a contingent transgression. And so if this viewer could actually not slip into the rules of analogy, read Afro-pessimist texts to understand the difference and um, understand that it's not an individual problem. I mean, we have to destroy the system. Maybe guilt won't be part of uh, his or her engagement or their engagement. I don't know what the, the pronoun is for this person. So I'll end there and you can give me the next person. All right, all right. Thank you. Uh, Jerry Ward uh, was curious, how, uh, how would you distinguish your quest from the one undertaken by Richard Wright in his later works? I don't know. I haven't thought about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have a great kind of uh, empathetic resonance with, with Wright, you know, in the main. Uh, for example, I keep, you know, when I want to talk about where I've been and what I've done, 
um, I keep going back to um, this little-known book of his called uh, Pagan Spain, you know, in which he talks about, uh, it's, a, it's, it's almost like, it's a journal, it's, it's, a, it's a small journal, uh, but this is the Richard Wright of Black Boy, this is the Richard Wright of Native Son, and yet it's a travel memoir, and he's traveling through a highly fascistic country, you know, Franco Spain in the 50s or 60s. And so um, that kind of movement in life is something that I find resonant with because I travel a lot and have lived other places and have found myself in a fascistic environment like South Africa. Um, I also think, so I, so I have a kind of, of, of connectiveness to him. And also in the fact that Wright moves from communism into something else without becoming pro-capitalist. And so I was a propagandist at a political education commissar of, 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 of communist thought in the ANC and various underground uh, uh, formations. And I ultimately saw that the communist cure, which I'm all for, will not um, alleviate anti-blackness. And I understand what Wright went through three generations before me probably when dealing with so-called communists who don't want to talk about the black question. So that's a anecdotal way of answering the question. I'd have to study it to answer it in more detail. All right, and uh, um, Mia, Mia from, uh, wanted to, uh, from New York City, wants you to know he's from New York. <laughs> he says he is new to you and your work, but he's so grateful that a friend suggested that I come on tonight, thank you. He's curious if about the relationship between Afrofuturism and Afro-pessimism and if Afro-pessimism would be a good starting point or if I should start with your second book. Okay, uh, the first question is too difficult. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, we, we would have to, we, you know, everything that I've been saying uh, literally takes 10 to 20 weeks to move through in a graduate seminar. And I've been trying to do it into sound bites that the general audience can, can deal with. That question, because you're gonna to have to deal with one of the first principles of Afrofuturism, and it's assumptive logic, one of the first principles of Afro-pessimism, and it's assumptive logic, and then you have to break down the various people and writers within those two camps to see. I would just say that um, uh, the, the, the questioner should um, probably uh, Google a, a person named Jerome Dent, Jerome D-E-N-T, who I think is a very profound Afro-pessimist um, finishing up his PhD work, and he's also he was an undergrad here at Irvine. I learned a lot from him about Afrofuturism, but not enough to speak intelligently on. And the second question was about what, the second part was about what he should read or something, or? We should read your second book. Uh, or should you start with your, with your, uh, with your second book? Okay. Which so this one, yeah. if you're a graduate student and, or not a graduate student, and you really enjoy the vernacular of critical theory, which is not, it's English, but it's not the English that I just read to you a few minutes ago when I told you a story, very different. If you enjoy that, I would say not go to this book, go to the second book. I, I can't believe I'm saying this, I'm trying to sell this book. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I hint at the overarching Afro-pessimist argument throughout this book and weave it into storytelling to make it accessible. And hopefully that people will then look at the people I've quoted, Cydia Hartman, Hortense Spillers, uh, Jared Sexton, 
give it very, and go to those texts and read them in the original. But if you are already dealing with Derrida and Foucault and Gramsci and the Italian communists, and you're, you're reading and talking at a high level of abstraction, I think I would go to the second book, Red, White, and Black, because that's where I make the argument in um, academic language and to the standards of what's called peer review. And for the record, Doctor, you have been making these very soundbiteable. So people, there's all kinds of comments in the in the, uh, the comment section about what an amazing talk this has been. Um, I got there's a lot of other questions, but I'm just going to pick this one last one. Uh, from Judith. Um, she'd like to know if there isn't another form of wisdom that emerges from Afro-pessimism that touches upon a symbolic order that operates despite the social contract. Otherwise, Black diaspora and Black American, Americans, excuse me, wouldn't have the sort of philosophical insights that shine today and is used now to question the foundations of Western thought. Uh, very complicated. The simple answer is no. Um, <laughs> I know Judith, and she's not going to like this. <laughs> I can actually see her face right now. I mean, she's, a, she's an analyst. And, and you know, it's, it's my beef with Lacan. It's, it's, I mean, I don't want to get too technical, but the, 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 they're not realms of the mind. They're kind of processes of the mind. Um, you know, the imaginary, the symbolic, and, and the real. And one of the points uh, that... I make in the second chapter of my second book, uh, which is targeted right at psychoanalysis, you know, and I never throw psychoanalysis out with the bathwater, right? I never throw Marxism out with the bathwater. I'm still invested in the diagnostic capacity of psychoanalysis. I'm still invested in the diagnostic capacity of, of, of Marx, and I'm still against capitalism. However, however, cure, in the psychoanalytic realm is a journey through the symbolic order. It's a, journey, it's a journey from the neurosis of the dyad that one finds in the imaginary into the a kind of triangulation of, of, of the symbolic order. And I've written an article on the Black Liberation Army, Ulrika um, uh, Meinhof and, and uh, the Bader Meinhof group uh, in Germany and the Irish Republican Art army, all, all one article. And the point that I'm trying to, to make in that article, politically and psychoanalytically, is that there's no place in the symbolic order for blackness. Now, that's the end of the argument. I can't, we don't have the time for me to go into the argument. And anyone who hasn't read Freud and Lacan is not going to really understand what I'm saying anyway. But I would say um, that I am teaching this uh, this very argument and, and why I have argued that the symbolic order is generically anti-Black. So that the tools of psychic emancipation and the tools of political emancipation that come out of the symbolic order cannot help Black suffering. And if uh, you're interested, I'm doing a 10-week course on this in the winter of 2021 called Afro-Pessimism and the Status of the Subject, in which I'm going to actually, which I will interrogate that very question to suggest that subjectivity itself is generically anti-Black. That's the point. But I can't, you know, I, I, put, I put everyone to sleep right now if I went into that lecture. 
uh, and uh, <laughs> and I can't do it, you know. <laughs> Well, on that thread of putting us to sleep, which I don't believe at all, what an amazing Dr. Frank Wilderson, thank you so much for, for taking this time. Justin, it's such a pleasure to see you. Thank you for engaging like this. This is a this has been medicina for me. It really has. And oh, thank uh, you so much. I, I, Doctor, I know you said you don't look at the comments, but you really should because there's a lot of raves, people just raving and raving and raving. So um it, it's been a it's been a great, great talk, really. God. So thank you. Thank you again. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have left. Um, City Lights would like to say gracias, gracias to Dr. Frank Wilderson III and Justin Dismangles for joining us this evening to talk about this very important book. I've been Josiah Luis Alderete, and on behalf of your City Lights familia, I want to say that I hope we see you all very, very soon, either in Zoom or in real time. Remember what it says on the City Lights walls? Printer's Inc. is the greatest explosive. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com/events.